Oh, I want to thank you all for tuning in to the 460th episode of Barstow Sports Talk with me, your host, Daryl D. Lane, as always, wherever you are, however you may be listening, I thank you for making me and this show part of your day, whether it be via Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Radio, SoundCloud, Pandora, whichever podcasting app or platform you may be listening to me via, being recorded from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, per the new usual, going to have John Clay on the show. He's a sports columnist for the Lexington Herald Leader. We have a great conversation. We talked about college football with SEC Media Day happening last week. We also talked about Kentucky football and Kentucky basketball. So really appreciate having John on the podcast. Now, before we get to that, I'm going to give my shameless plug as always. First time listener, thank you. But subscribe and follow right now. Also, share this podcast with friends and family, whether it be via Reddit threads, Facebook groups, etc., etc. Check on the description below. Specifically, if you use Spotify, you can click on the timestamp and we'll send you to whichever part of the podcast you would most like to listen to. Folks, it is for your convenience. Follow me on Twitter at Nitron underscore Lane. And also, subscribe to my YouTube channel. Just type in Daryl Lane. You will find it. I post two five-minute clips of this podcast right here, as well as my syndicate show, Outside the Shop. And lastly, if you have Apple or iTunes, give me five stars and a great review. If for some odd reason, right? If you don't like the pod, then... Don't say anything, because you know what your mama told you. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it at all. And now it's time for one of my monologues that my good friend Kenny Sim loves so very, very much. There are things that in life should really concern you. We call them red flags. You're on a first date with someone, and all they talk about is marrying rich and money. That's your red flag. Bro, you better run away quick, fast, and in a hurry. Imagine you're hiring a CEO for a company. The questions asked during the job interview, what are you willing to do to make this company as successful as you can? And the guy says back, I'm not willing to do anything. Wow. You probably shouldn't hire that guy. You see, I was talking to my doctor about uh, controlled substances a few months ago. We were talking about how uh, he looks out for red flags with certain patients and certain people who come by because uh, they will lie about, let's say, needing Adderall or certain stimulants, right, that are highly controlled substances. And they'll go from state to state. So, for example, somebody from Virginia will fake a residency in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and say, oh, I'm here, I got a new job, this and that, just so that doctor can give them the pills, the medication, and then they will drive back. So they're, you know, trying to do drug travel across state lines, right? So what he does is he makes them get uh, certain tests, uh, P-tests, and stuff like that to make sure what's in their system. And like he said, a lot of times, they won't go to that test. You want to know what? That's a red flag. It lets you know something was up. The person didn't ask for the medication because it helps them study. They were asking for the medication for nefarious purposes. Tips off his radar. He says, and I never see those people ever again. I remember Josh Rosen when he was coming out of the draft process. No one liked the guy. His coach said he was an a-hole. I always thought that was a major red flag for me. You know, 
Your coach is supposed to be your biggest supporter. Your coach should never be the one who's saying, you're a jerk, you're an a-hole, this is what you need to do better as a person. For the biggest job interview of your life, which is the NFL draft, your coach should be saying nothing but praising, gushing about you in all the positive ways and all the right ways to the point where, as a GM, you don't pay attention to the coach because you think they're lying. So when the coach really does say something bad about you, it lets you know you have some issues. We know. Seems like a lot of people don't like Josh Rosen. They're not willing to go to bat for him. Red flag. Kyler, on a base level, seems very immature. Uh, during the Dan Patrick interview, when he was not even a rookie in the NFL, uh, he seemed a little off, didn't respond really well, uh, seemed a little aloof. Then we watch him play against the Los Angeles Rams. It looked like he didn't do any film study. Right, Kyler not doing any film study. Even though the Cardinals just put in their contract, we need you to do film study. He scrubbed the cars off his social media as a way to get their attention that he wanted a new contract. Juvenile, yes, I know. And now there's, of course, the Cardinals again having to put in his contract that he needs to watch film. And a quarterback in the NFL needs a mandate in his contract to watch film. Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, the greats of the greats, Joe Montana. You had to stop them from watching too much film to the point where they would neglect their whole family. Not because, quote unquote, they're too busy playing Call of Duty instead of getting on the clicker and preparing for what the other opposing team is going to do the next week in the football season. And I want to say this is a side note. Uh, Kyler, during that Rams game, missing reads, Missing throws, missing open guys, not recognizing pressure is a sign that he wasn't studying. And again, during that Rams game, I was thinking to myself, it looks like Kyler and Cliff were really unprepared. Maybe Cliff prepares really well, but Kyler wasn't prepared. And it looks even worse and worse with this new contract amendment. Here's a truth about Kyler that might hurt a little bit. He likes playing football because it's fun. Lots of people do. The rush on Friday nights, Saturdays, Sundays, it's amazing. There's nothing like it. I got the opportunity to play high school football on Friday. I know friends who got the opportunity to play college football on a Saturday. Playing on Sunday, it's something that every kid in America dreams of. He's living the dream. But does he like football? Does he like the grind? Does he like the tediousness of it? Or does he like what football does for it? The fun, the adrenaline, the atmosphere. We know Kyler doesn't like the grind to an extent. He was a top baseball prospect and left baseball. He didn't want to be in the minor league system. Didn't want to be on the road. He wanted the money. He wanted the gratification right away. And then he decided to turn his back on baseball, quit baseball, quit on the Oakland A's, and say, I'm going to try my hat in football. Because it's more fun. He didn't want to go through the grind that is Major League Baseball. Particularly in the minor league system. He wanted the easy, quick reward that is the NFL. Why give Kyler a contract? Andrew Luck didn't necessarily love playing football. Had other outside interests. He retired before he even, even hit year 10 in the league. Are we sure Kyler's going to play out this contract? Some people have said he doesn't love football. I don't know. He's not obsessed with it. He's not willing to live and die with it. And that's something you want your quarterback to do. 
Now, a few podcasts ago, I came on this show and I said, you have to give Kyler the money because what else are you going to do? Like I said, the easiest thing in sports, don't pay the guy. But can you make a worthwhile investment on somebody who's not willing to invest all they can in you? Now, I didn't know about the Kyler film issue, but if I was an owner, it would be very hard for me for a GM or a coach, an agent or a player to convince me why said player should get my money when they don't seem to be all in. And the Cardinals did it with Kyler anyway. Now, the Cardinals historically haven't been a very good organization. And Kyler Murray has just exhibited a major red flag of why he will never be a true franchise QB, top five, bona fide Super Bowl winner. And now he's going to have to prove me wrong. So now I want to get to this. So Nick Wright is coming out with his top 50 NBA players in the last 50 years. It came out on Sunday. There was a lot made out of it because Michael Jordan, in my opinion, the greatest basketball player of all time, in most people's opinion, was ranked number three. So I, I just kind of want to explain this and why Nick Wright isn't as crazy as he may sound. So first of all, let's get this out of the way. Nick Wright, he's a LeBron lover. Uh, and the truth is this man will ride and die with LeBron James whether he does the right thing or the wrong thing on the court. So anything to kind of pump up LeBron, denigrate Jordan, does it shock me? Nick Wright kind of went with the most uh, outlier opinion. No, I think that's part of his shtick a little bit, right? Now, I do feel compelled to come to his defense a little bit because I've been doing my own research of the top 100 basketball players, the top 100 basketball players of all time. And just some of the qualifications, I don't want to get too much into it because you'll have to listen to it when I release it. Uh, but uh, MVP, being the best player on a championship team, and being the best player in the NBA 5, 10, 15 years. All things that are major requirements. So league MVP, how many second and third place league MVP finishes you have, being the best player on a championship team, second best player on a championship team, and third best player on a championship team, and being the best player in the NBA, whether that's 5, 10, 15 years, how long were you a top 5 player, top 10, top 15, etc., etc. So let's get to this. And here's the case that Nick Wright has. There are four players, in my opinion, that have a case to be the greatest of all time. Bill Russell, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, LeBron James, and Michael Jordan. Here's what they all have in common. They all went about a decade of being the best player in the league, which is extremely important. Jordan was the best player in the league from 87 to 98. That's about nine years. You're taking out the 93 uh, and 95 season where he did not play because he decided to play baseball. So Jordan had about nine years. LeBron had eight years, 2012 to 2020, where in my opinion, he was the best player in the league. I'm taking out uh, the 2019 year where he was with LA for the first year and he got hurt. I don't believe he was the best player in the NBA that year. I think it was Kawhi Leonard. Then Kareem was the best player in the NBA from 1970 to 1981. That is 11 years. And Bill Russell was the best player in the NBA from 1957 to 1967. So that's 10 years. So Bill Russell at 10 years is the best player in the NBA. Kareem at 11 years is the best player in the NBA. LeBron at eight years is the best player in the NBA. And Michael Jordan had nine years is the best player in the NBA, in my opinion. So Kareem's beating all of them in that place, in that statistic, right? Then we get to MVPs. Jordan's MVPs. Jordan has five. Bill Russell has five. Kareem has six. LeBron has four. Kareem is now beating all of them in MVPs. Best player on a championship team. Bill Russell is the best player on a championship team eight times. 
Jordan was the best player on a championship team six times. LeBron was the best player on a championship team four times. And Kareem was the best player on a championship team only three times. The last three, Magic was the best player. And he went through a stretch for towards the end in LA. He was like the fifth best guy on the team. So this is just a tad bit of information for you guys just to kind of show you when we look at it. Kareem does have a case. It's not crazy to say he's over Jordan. He has more MVPs than Jordan, and he was better in the league longer than Jordan. And also, for talking about just pure longevity, he had a better career than Jordan in terms of that. In terms of uh, at 40 years old, he was a contributor on an NBA team. At 40 years old, uh, Michael Jordan was just coming out of retirement for the second straight time. Michael did not play as long as Kareem. That's also why Kareem is the all-time leader in points. So I just want to put that out there so everybody understands. I know everybody has their own preference in the GOAT conversation, but there are four guys who I think reasonably you can call the GOAT and you should not get too much hate. So I do want to come to Kareem's defense in that regard. Now, it's time for us to get to John Clay and talk some SEC football. Cut up next at the break on Barbershop Sports Talk. The action never ends at DraftKings Sportsbook, especially this summer. With tons of ways to bet on all your favorite sports, you can fuel your fandom and feel the heat of the season like never before. Plus, right now, DraftKings Sportsbook is giving new customers a risk-free bet up to $1,000. That's right, folks, $1,000. Make your first bet up to $1,000, and if it doesn't win, you'll get another shot to cash in. I know. Great deal, right? You should take it right now. You can throw down on all the major action for baseball, golf, MMA, and more. Plus, with same-game parlay spreads, money lines, over-unders, and props, your betting options feel endless. Best of all, DraftKings is safe, secure, and reliable. You can deposit and withdraw your cash whenever you want. Great deal. Again, should take it, folks. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code TPPN. Make your first deposit and get a risk-free bet up to $1,000. That's promo code TPPN only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Barbershop Sports Talk, and we have a very special guest with us, John Clay, sports columnist for the Lexington Herald Leader. How you doing, man? I'm doing good. How are you doing? I'm doing absolutely fantastic. So my first question for you is this, right? So you've been covering Kentucky, particularly uh, football there, since 1987, right? How do you think college football has changed from when you first kind of got into the industry and you started kind of really closely following the sport till now? Uh, I mean, it's, it's changed <laughs> It's changed in a lot of ways. I mean, uh, you know, the attention to it's changed. Uh, you know, the leagues, as we're going through right now with the expansion of the leagues, it all kind of started in 1992 when the SEC expanded, brought Arkansas and South Carolina into the league and uh, to make it a 12-team league and split it into divisions so they could have a championship game. Uh, obviously, that started, uh, you know, to what we've seen up to now, which is recently the UCLA and USC, you know, joining the Big Ten, even though, you know, geographically that doesn't make a lot of sense with the super conferences and so forth. Another thing that's changed uh, uh, a lot is, uh, you know, when I started working for the newspaper, you know, you had your newspaper, your TV and radio were pretty much your three outlets that uh, provided the news for the sports that you were interested in. 
now obviously with the internet has changed everything with the you know computers you have a lot more blogs a lot more websites that sort of thing uh podcasts uh that uh, so there's a lot more competition as far as covering a particular school or a particular team but on the flip side of that that means if you're a fan you've got a lot you're getting a lot more information now than you probably did back then so and the game itself has changed i think it's more of a uh the passes passing game is emphasized more than uh uh, it was back then, um, and Kentucky was part of that as well with Al Mummy coming in with the uh, air raid in 1997 was his first season. So, you know, uh, a lot of changes so forth. But still, I think college football probably now is probably as popular as it ever was. Do you think the changes have been for the better or for the worse? I think some have been for the better, some have been the worse. for the worse. Uh, I think... You know, I'm not a huge fan of the super conferences the way they're going now. I, I think we're going to see more of that, but I think I don't, I'm not sure that it's good for the game overall. Like USC and UCLA moving to the Big Ten, uh, you know, Texas and Oklahoma coming into the SEC, where you know we we could end up with just two super conferences with the SEC and the Big Ten, and I wonder what that's going to do for the other schools. I mean, you'll have more marquee matchups, but I'm not sure that it helps the game. Uh, overall, I think part I think it kind of gets away from some of the charm and some of the things, the identity that college football has when you have that sort of thing. Um, you know, obviously NIL and the players getting paid uh, is different than it, you know obviously than it used to be. I think that's actually something good. I think the players, as much money as the uh, universities are making and getting from their TV contracts, ticket sales, revenue, and so forth, that the players deserve a cut of that because the basically college football college sports is professional sports at the college level so I think they should get a cut of that so I think that's a change for the good if it's handled correctly uh, but I'm not so sure that the super conferences and just having you know a, a, you know 40 say they both go to 20 teams and those are the only 40 schools that matter as far as college football goes I don't think that's good for the sport at all well I guess here's my question for you: Is where do you think we're heading with the super conferences? Like, I, like, what do you think is like the logical conclusion of all this? Like, 20 years from now, what are we looking at here? <laughs> well, that's a great question. I mean, uh, I think TV is dictating everything, and it's how much money the TV, what TV wants. TV wants obviously more marquee matchups, and I think the, the by expanding your conferences, and uh, I think that's where we're headed. I think it's going to be, like I said, I would not surprise me in five, ten years where the SEC and the Big Ten are both 20 teams and everybody else is spending for themselves. Uh, I don't think there will continue to be a power five that we talk about now with the SEC, the Big Ten, the ACC, the Big 12, and the Pac-12. I'm not sure the Pac-12 is going to be able to survive. Uh, and I think you're going to see more consolidation, uh, You know, where whether it's the Pac-12 and Big 12 kind of combining or the ACC trying to work out something with the other conferences, I think we're going to see more. I think we're just going to continue to see see more of that unless, uh, and, you know, unless some drastic changes are made. Now, my question also for you would be this, right? You kind of mentioned the negative part of this is only a few schools will matter, right? When we have all these super conferences, but couldn't I make the point that only a handful of schools have always mattered? Yeah, you can make that point. I mean, you know, uh, if you look at the college football playoff, uh, even back to the BCS, it seems like it's pretty much the same schools every year that are in that. When you talk about Alabama, Ohio State, uh, Clemson, uh, now we've seen Georgia uh, rise up the last few years. Uh, Michigan, oh, Ohio State seems like they're there every year. Michigan had a good year last year. 
Uh, Cincinnati finally broke through and became a group of five team that got into the playoff. But, yeah, you can make that case. Uh, but what I worry about is, I mean, is that you get uh, schools, um, you know, let's, for instance, Oklahoma State, Kansas State, uh, in the Pac-12, uh, you know, Arizona, Arizona State. I mean, uh, those schools rely, and you make say it about a bunch of ACC schools, those schools rely on revenue to fund their other sports, the sports that uh, they offer, uh, they're student-athletes, but that maybe do not make money, and uh, or they can continue to get that revenue if all the revenue goes to the SEC and the Big, uh, and the big Ten. So, like I said, I think it kind of hurts the charm and the identity. I think one of the great things about college football is the rivalries that you have over the years. And I know new rivalries will spring up. They always do. But uh, I think we're going to see more and more of those go by the wayside uh, with, with the mega-conferences. If I told you when you first started – covering football that there would be super conferences what would you have said no, I, <laughs> I certainly would not have believed it like I said I was covering uh, Kentucky football in 92 and Roy Kramer uh, the SEC commissioner decided to you know make the move to bring in uh, Arkansas and South Carolina and really got the ball rolling so uh, no I would not have I would not have uh, believed that but and, you know everything changes nothing uh, nothing stays the same you know the old saying that you know if you don't like change you don't like uh, relevance even less uh, so I understand a lot of the change like I said I'm in favor of NIL and I'm I can understand some of these moves I just wonder where we're headed I mean I wrote a column the other day is that uh, you know the NFL is by far and away the most popular sport especially on television and I think one of the things about the NFL is that the NFL you know uh, has 32 teams they have a salary cap they have revenue sharing so that every team you know has a chance uh, not only the salary cap that there's a maximum amount of money that they can spend on player salaries, but there's also a minimum amount of money that they have to spend on player salaries. And I think that's part of the reason that people watch the NFLs because if you follow a team, there are going to be ups and downs, but you think your team has a chance. I just wonder when college football, is that going to be the case? Like you say, and you're exactly right, there's seems like a handful of schools when you're talking about a national championship that matter. But I think the difference between the haves and the have-nots is going to, with the super conferences and the way things are headed, there's going to be a much more of a stark difference between the have and the have-nots. And uh, I, I don't think overall that that's good for college football. How does Oklahoma and Texas change the SEC? Well, it's going to make it harder, especially for a team like Kentucky. I mean, it just adds two, two you know, blue-ribbon powerhouse programs, uh, potential to be powerhouse programs. I know Texas has fallen on hard times here lately. I think they obviously have that tradition and history and have a chance to come back. So it's going to make it harder. It expands the footprint uh, of the league. Uh, you know, it, it, and obviously it's going to bring more marquee matchups. I, you know, I heard Nick Saban say the other day, and I agree, I agree with him. He said, you know, one of the things is that uh, uh, attendance in college football has uh, gradually declined over the past few years. And he thinks part of that is that there's not as many games that are as interesting to fans. Uh, in the, as in the past and I, maybe if they go to uh, SEC plays eight games now if they go to nine uh, that'll bring be more uh, uh, more interesting matchups that the fans will want to come and attend the games or watch them on TV and Texas and Oklahoma obviously will add to that so yeah it's going to make it definitely make it a stronger uh, football conference going to make it a stronger basketball conference those are two quality basketball programs uh, but um, so and but it's going to make it it's obviously going to make it tougher for teams like Kentucky, those kind of teams that are trying to uh, fight their way up the ladder in the SEC to do so when you had a Texas and Oklahoma. 
Who are some of the best teams you've seen in the SEC? Just in general. Uh, you mean just over the years? Yeah, over the years. Well, I mean those Florida teams when Spurrier had it going at Florida, those are awful. Those are really good teams. Uh, you know, people kind of forget that Alabama team with Gene Stallings back. That was one of the best defensive teams. The team that won the national championship, I think, in 1992. Uh, they were a really good team. But Florida's teams with Spurrier, uh, you know, continued on with Urban Meyer. But Spurrier, when Spurrier came into the league, it was not a passing league, uh, and he was able to exploit that, uh, you know, and they were just fun and exciting to watch. Plus, you had Spurrier's personality. Uh, obviously, those were really good teams. The Alabama teams of late, uh, with Nick Saban, the championships that he's won at Alabama, obviously, those were really good teams. I thought the Georgia team last year, their defense was as good a defense as I've seen in my entire time covering the SEC. They just had so many great players on defense, played so well on defense. Uh, you know, that's, that sticks out to me uh, as well. To me, those are – but if you look at the two dominant figures in SEC football in the time since I've been covering it, I would say Steve Spurrier and Nick Saban are there at the top. And those, are the, uh, those teams that those guys produced, I think, are the best teams. And give me some of the top players you've got a chance to see where it's kind of like you see that guy and you're like, wow. Like, or, or maybe that player didn't like <laughs> go on to have like a lot of success in the NFL, but you were like, wow, when I'm watching, like this dude is just different out here. Uh, well, I mean, I mean, you know, there's a, there's a bunch of those guys. Uh, you know, when you think about, well, really, he didn't play for Spurs. He played for Urban Meyer. Tim Tebow is a guy who did not play, you know, did not, uh, do well professionally, but you know, it's just almost the epitome of a college player. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, when he played at Kentucky, when he played in Lexington, he suffered a concussion in the first half and missed the rest of the game. Uh, but obviously, he was a, he was a great player. I mean, there's been a ton of great players, a lot of great players. On, you mentioned on the defensive side of the ball, when you think about Alabama and Georgia, uh, you know, Spurrier had great Spurrier had great players who executed his offense. You know, really well when you talk about Danny Warfel, even before that with Shane Matthews as his quarterback. Um, you know, it's hard to, uh, I'm just thinking off the top of my head here, Tebow stands out because I just thought he was, you know, he, he was obviously a great college player. He was not an NFL player, but he was a great college football player. For you, what do you think is the biggest reason the SEC is kind of unanimously regarded as the best conference in college football? Well, you know, we like to make fun of the SEC's motto about it just means more, but I think it is an accurate motto. I think especially in college football, uh, just in schools in the SEC and in the South, I mean, they live and die by college football. I mean, uh, in a lot of those areas, they don't pay any attention to pro football or the NFL. It's all about college football. Uh, when you talk about Alabama and Auburn, and Georgia, uh, even in Florida, uh, places like that, I mean, they, Tennessee, they live and die by college football. They have a lot of integrity, a lot of uh, history, uh, you know, by tradition, by them, the year after year. I mean, you grow up as, a, you know, your father's a SEC fan of a particular SEC school. You become one, and that's passed down. Uh, I think, obviously, the warm weather helps because you can make it a 12-month-a-year sport. You can, work, you can work out in the summer and then the winter. People want to go to where, uh, you know, the weather is warmer. I can remember the first trip that I made to Florida when I was covering Kentucky. And uh, back then, they used to play in November. And you were down there in Florida in, in November, you know, it's 70, 80 degrees. And I remember a couple of buddies of mine who also covered UK. We went to eat after the game. And, uh, you know, 
kids are, uh, the Florida students are around in their shorts and their flip-flops, and this is November, and you say, okay, I see why Florida can recruit. I see why they can get players to come down here. So I think that, that has, you know, that has something to do with it as well. But I think the history and tradition that's been passed on through the years, and I think just they, people live and die and breathe football 12 months, college football 12 months a year in the South, and I think that has a lot to do with it. How close do you think the Big Ten is to the SEC? You know, I think the Big Ten, obviously the Big Ten is a really good league. I don't, you know, if you go by, to me, a big barometer of uh, a league, is how many players do they get drafted because it gives you an idea of what kind of talent's in the league, and the SEC always seems to dominate that the last few years. But the Big Ten obviously has a larger tradition when you talk about Ohio State there, there, there year after year. Uh, Michigan has been down, but it looks like Harbaugh's got them back coming back up again. There's other quality programs, obviously, with Penn State, Wisconsin. Uh, Kentucky played Iowa in the uh, Citrus Bowl this past year. Iowa, uh, under Kirk Ferentz, has been a, a consistent you know, team year after year. Uh, but as far as overall talent, I don't think it's quite at the level that the SEC is. With SEC media, it's said it's going to be next week. Uh, what are some of the things that you're looking forward most uh, for SEC Media Day? Well, of course, everybody's looking forward to the Nick Saban-Jimbo Fisher deal. After what happened uh, here this summer with uh, Saban making some comments about Texas A&M's recruiting class, and uh, Jimbo Fisher did not, the Texas A&M coach, did not take kindly to that and kind of fired back at Nick Saban, his old boss, from when they were both together at LSU. So, obviously, we're, <laughs> we're anxious to see uh, what kind of comments, if any, are made about that. I think the other thing we're looking forward to is Greg Sankey, the commissioner, will be speaking, and there'll be a lot of questions about where is the game headed. Does the SEC, now that the uh, Big Ten has expanded to 16, will the SEC try to expand as well? You know, what's going to happen with the super conferences? Uh, I mean, I think that's, I think obviously those are pretty obvious storylines, but there's some other things as well. Uh, we're interested in talking to Brian Kelly, who left Notre Dame to go to LSU. This is his first year at LSU. Uh, and there's some other guys in the league that, uh, you know, have done well in their first year. Uh, guys, I think of guys like Josh Heupel at Tennessee, Shane Beamer at South Carolina, uh, Spencer Rattler, the quarterback from Oklahoma, has transferred to South Carolina. So I think there'll be a lot of questions about that. Uh, so, you know, and Georgia winning the national championship with Kirby Smart coming off that, trying to defend their national title. I mean, that'll be a storyline as well. Um, and But I think main, the main storyline is going to be with the conferences and NIL and the transfer portal. You know, just where is the game headed? You know, one of the things Kentucky coach Mark Stoops has said to me, and he said several times about NIL, is that, you know, really there are no rules right now. People are just doing whatever they, you know, want to do. And uh, uh, Mark's thing has been, you know, there needs to be a set of rules. Just tell us what the rules are, and then we'll adjust and go by what the rules say, uh, you know. But the, right now, with the way the way it is, there really are no rules. Schools can pretty much do what they want. So I think there'll be a lot of questions about NIL and where that's headed as well. What did you make of Nick Saban and Jimbo? Because you have Nick Saban kind of alleging <laughs> that uh, Jimbo did some underhand tactics to get the number one recruiting class, and then Jimbo goes on a rant, which I thought was fantastic, said referring to him as God, and <laughs> like the deeds God did. <laughs> You know, the funny, the, to me, the interesting thing is Saban made the comments. At, it was not at a press conference. It was at a deal where uh, Birmingham was hosting the something called the World Games. And a lot of the business leaders had stepped up to the plate to uh, uh, to 
get the World Games to come to Birmingham, and he spoke to that group, and he started talking about the recruiting class, about NIL, and as you said, he said Texas had the number one class, and that they bought their class. I, to me, he was. I think he was trying to tell the boosters, hey, you guys need to step up and help us out. Look what Texas A&M's doing. We need your money to help get the NIL, for NIL to help get these players. And I think Jimbo, when he fired back at uh, Nick, and of course Nick said later he didn't, he he should not have singled out Texas A&M, but he he claims he didn't say Texas A&M was doing anything wrong by the way the rules are. But Jimbo, I think firing back at Nick, and Nick, I think also sent a signal to his fan base and boosters. Hey, I may have worked for uh, Nick Saban. I'm friends with Nick Saban, but I'm not beholden to Nick Saban. We're in the comp, we're in the same division, in the same conference. We're trying to win the same thing. And uh, you know, I'm I'm not the I'm not his lackey, or I'm not beholden it to him. I want to beat him just as bad as you do. So I think both of them probably got something good out of the deal. I think Saban sent a message to his boosters: "You guys need to step up the plate." And Jimbo sent a message to his boosters that, "Hey, I think Saban might have been my former boss, but he's not the boss of me now." Yeah, and I think that's good because I, I kind of feel like, you know, there's this aura and mystique around Nick Saban. And when you're successful and in the industry as much as Nick is, like, and you're being compared to not anybody who's your contemporary, like, he's compared to people like Bear Bryant. He's compared to people who are, like, dead. <laughs> so, like, right. it, it's easy for a lot of people to be like, oh, my God, that's Nick. Like, this is the, the greatest right. guy living. And Jimbo's like, no, I work for him. He's not all that. And he does as many slimy stuff as I do, if not more. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think there was definitely part of that, part of that in there as well. Uh, but uh, yeah, but it was fun, and it'll be fun to see next week if uh, if they exp- either one of them uh, choose to expound on any of that. Do you think they will address it at all? No, I think they'll probably try to play it down. Uh, I think uh, I think probably Greg Sankey has kind of sent a message to both of them. Hey, we don't need that to be played out in public. So. You know, I think they'll try to play it down, but I think it'll definitely. I think it will definitely come up. Like I said, I think there'll be questions asked of every coach, and and of Greg Sankey, the commissioner, about NIL and where that's going, and uh, how that's playing out right now. So, uh, but as far as the two attacking each other, uh, maybe I'll be pleasantly surprised, and they will do that next next week. But I'm not expecting it. Well, all it does is build up hype for when A and M and Alabama play. That's all it does. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> That'll be the game of the year. <laughs> I know. How much longer do you think Nick will coach? Because he's like, what, is he almost 70 now? Yeah, uh, yeah, that's a good question. I heard him on Greg McElroy's uh, uh, podcast, and Greg asked, of course, you play for Saban at Alabama, was quarterback at Alabama. I asked him that. Nick kind of avoided the question. He said he still had the passion for the game, uh, and that even more than winning and losing, he wanted to help players reach their full potential. And he just he wanted people to, what drives him uh, is that, he wants people to do the right thing and play the game the right way, and he wants to continue in that. So, I don't know. That's a good. That's an interesting question. How long he'll go? But uh, he doesn't seem to be slowing down any. I mean, I, I know they lost last year in the championship game, but it would not surprise me if they start out as the AP uh, number one in the preseason poll for this year. So, I don't think Nick's slowing down. Yeah, I've always thought about it like this because I can remember when Steve Spurrier, when he was out with South Carolina, like it's kind of like the team wasn't doing very well. Like Alabama's doing so well. I mean. They're a national championship contender every year, so it's kind of like I keep getting like top three recruiting classes. We're always in the mix. Like they'll probably always be in the mix as long as he's there. So it's like, when do I leave? Do I leave after we win a national title? Like I want to win another one. I want to repeat. Do I uh, leave after we just lose the national title? Oh, I don't like that feeling. I want to get another one. It's like, when does it end? Right. 
Right. I don't know. I mean, that's a good question. I know, you know, and people that, you know, that I know Alabama cover Alabama, you know, that he, you know, he likes that challenge. I do think there are times, the way they talk, I mean, where, you know, it's, it's just constant. I mean, there's the story about the uh, one year when they won the championship and a friend of his was a golfing buddy uh, called him and to congr- the next day to congratulate him and Saban was complaining that he had to go back out on the road, that he had lost time in recruiting because they had spent so much time in preparation for the championship game and so forth. You know, I mean, I think the grind uh, never ends. But uh, uh, he's got that drive and he's got that passion. But, uh, you know, uh, it's hard to predict when he might uh, might hang it up. Maybe he'll surprise us one day, just jump up and say, it's my time and I'm stepping down. But even though, even at his age, I don't think that's anytime soon. So I've always thought about this because I think it's interesting when you have like certain schools like Kentucky, for example, right? They have like this really blue blood college basketball program. They get a lot of times the top recruits in the country, but in the football program, it's not necessarily like that. Why do you think there's kind of that difference? Why on the basketball side, right? Same school, same area. Uh, they can go out and they can recruit nationally and get all these guys, but why the, on the football side they can't? Well, I mean, I think it goes back to history, history and tradition. Kentucky's always been successful. Since Adolph Rupp came uh, to Kentucky basketball, uh, you know they won national championships in the '40s and the '50s. Uh, basketball means a lot to the state here because of that success. Kentucky doesn't rank very high in a lot of areas, but they do rank high in basketball. It's something that the state has always been proud of, and I think that tradition has kept going. You don't have that same kind of tradition in football. Bear Bryant was the coach here in the late '40s and the early '50s. They had a lot of success, but then he left. And they've had a hard time duplicating that success since then. And one of the reasons that, and Brian has said it, he wrote it in his book that he left Kentucky, was because he kind of got jealous of the, all the attention that basketball was receiving over football. And uh, that was, you know, the famous story here, uh, which is sort of embellished, but it's pretty much true that uh, Rupp, Adolph Rupp and Bear Bryant won the uh, conference the same year, and the athletic department rewarded the uh, up with a Cadillac and they gave uh, Brian a new cigarette lighter. So uh, whether that's whether that's entirely true, I don't know. That's the way legend has it. But Brian was pretty open in saying that he left Kentucky because he did. He was even though he was friends with Rupp, he was jealous of all the attention that basketball received. And I think that goes back to that Kentucky has been successful in basketball. Like I talked about with the SEC about its generational, it's passed down from generation to generation. It's the same thing here as far as attention to basketball and be a basketball fan. So uh, Kentucky has that national profile of basketball where Kentucky football, because it hasn't been as successful, doesn't have the same kind of profile. What do you think the ceiling of Kentucky football is? Well, you know, I mean, Mark Stoops, in my opinion, has done a remarkable job here uh, in his time here. I mean, they have uh, the program seems to have improved year by year. He's built a really solid foundation that they're building off of that. Uh, bold victories in the last few years. Uh, but it's tough because, you know, as we talked about with the SEC, and you've got Georgia in the same division. Uh, you got Alabama, Auburn. you got a lot of schools that work football meets a lot to those schools, and they have tradition and history. So it's tough. I think, they can, I think they're in the position now where they can play for, I'm not saying they're going to win the division title, but they got a chance in the last couple of years. Twice in the last four years, it's basically come down to Kentucky and Georgia, and Georgia's handled them both years pretty easily uh, for the division champion. It's, uh, I mean, it's awful hard to take that next step 
but uh, they're they're putting that putting themselves in that position both through facilities and recruiting and the type of coaches and player development that they've had where they, I think they can put themselves in a position where they can at least compete for the division title whether they can win it I'm not I don't know uh, and I think they have a possibility they could jump up every once in a while and maybe win a more than 10 games, win 11 games or so forth, but it's it's hard to do in this kind of league. Is Mark Stoops, you think Mark Stoops is going to stay in Kentucky long term? Yeah, I don't see you know, I, I don't see him leaving. I mean, obviously if a job came along that would be hard to turn down. Uh, he's worked so hard to build what he has here. Uh, uh, you know, I don't see him leaving for just, you know, any, any job. That's not to say I mean, he has a lot of Big Ten roots. He played at Iowa. He's from Youngstown, Ohio. Uh, you know, he's a lot of connections to Michigan. You know, if a Michigan job came open or something like that, and they came after him, I think he'd have to listen. He's got a lot of connections down in Miami. Uh, he coached down there on a national championship team as an assistant. Uh, you know, those types of jobs might be appealing to him, but I don't think he's going to leave just to take another job. Uh, like I said, he's done a lot of work to build up the build up what he has here. The facilities are much better than they uh, been in the past. He's gotten support from the administration. They have a, uh, I say new, it's four or five years old now, a new uh, football training facility, which is, you know, people ask me all the time, how does it compare to the others in the SEC? And I'm like, well, it's not probably not the best in the SEC, but it's certainly competitive with the best football facilities in the SEC. They redid the stadium three or four years ago. They just announced a project where they're going to redo their indoor field house, which right now is shared by football, track, and other sports. They're going to redo it so that it's a football-only indoor facility. They're going to build another structure for the other sports. Uh, and the recruiting, the recruiting level has gone up. They had the best year. Last year's recruiting class was the best recruiting class Marcus had since he's come here. So I don't think he's ready right now unless it's just a job he couldn't turn down to walk away from uh, what he's got going right now in Kentucky. To go to basketball, well, how would you sum up the John Calipari era? Well, I mean, he got off to a tremendous start. Uh, the first, uh, when you talk about his first season, 2009 through 2010, all the way through the 2015 season, even though they didn't win the national championship, but they were 38-1, had a chance to be 40-0. Um, you know, that's about as good as they won a national championship, played in, in 2012, played in, uh, they were in the final four in 2011, 2012, 14 and 15, uh, played in the national championship game in 14. I mean, it's hard to beat that stretch there. It's fallen off a little bit uh, since then. Part of that is probably, uh, uh, you know, just kind of a return to the norm. It's hard to keep the level that they did, Mark, I mean, John's first six years. Uh, but they, their recruiting has not been quite as good. They've had you know, classes that rank towards the top of college basketball, but, but it's not been quite as good. The stat that I keep using is that uh, from, two, from Cal's first recruiting class 2009, uh, for the 2009-2010 season through 2015, they had nine players that were taken in the top ten of the NBA draft. Since then, they've had only three. So uh, he made some changes in his staff last year. I think he's trying to get back. He's got a chance to have a really good recruiting class coming up this next year. Uh, you know, I think he's trying to get back to that level of recruiting. Uh, but there is some grumbling from the fans. They went 9-16 and 16 the COVID year, and then they lost in the first round to St. Peter's this past year. People are a little tired with the one and done, uh, especially when they see teams like Villanova and North Carolina, 
uh, Baylor win with more experienced players, guys who've been in the, the programs for two, three years. Uh, so there is some grumbling about that. And Cal will have one of his older teams coming in this next year. He's going to have four seniors on the team. Uh, but uh, I think he senses it too. He wants to get back to the level where they were, uh, you know, his first, you know, uh, first four or five years uh, when he was the coach at Kentucky. Could you ever see Cal really changing his one and done philosophy of maybe going more older and more experienced? Uh, yes and no. He will not change his philosophy about recruiting. Cal is a competitive person, and Cal is a salesman, and Cal will go. Cal goes out to recruit a kid. He wants to win that recruiting battle. He wants to sell that kid on what he has to offer the head coach and what Kentucky has to offer in the program, not just for playing in college, but also going on to the NBA. So I don't think that's going to change. I do think he's going to – he used the transfer portal, even though they did, they did lose to St. Pete, uh, Peter's in the, uh, in the tournament. Overall, they had a pretty successful season. They didn't win the SEC, but they were right in the mix. And uh, but and he a lot of that had to do with the transfers he had. Oscar Sheebway was uh, you know unanimous national player of the year. He was a transfer from West Virginia. Severe Wheeler, their uh, point guard, was a transfer from Georgia. Kellen Grady was a transfer from Davidson. He's got a couple of more transfers on the team this year. A kid, uh, a high scoring kid out of Illinois State, uh, C.J. Frederick out of Iowa, who actually came last year but got was injured and couldn't play. Uh, I think you're going to see him use more of the transfer portal to try to get older quicker uh, because of that. He made the joke, he made the statement to us last year that he really enjoyed the team last year because they got his jokes because they were older, they understood him <laughs> more than the <laughs> freshman. But I don't think he's ever, he, Cal's going to want to beat you in everything and he definitely wants to beat you in recruiting. So I don't think that part of it's going to change now. So with this, right, uh, I do think it's interesting. So that Kentucky team that almost went undefeated, that Towns Booker team, what was that team like to watch in real time for you? Uh, I mean, they were <laughs> they were an amazing team to watch. You know, the interesting thing about that season was, you know, we went into the season thinking, okay, there's, you know, they're they've got to, they talked even before the season started. They talked about, you know, uh, maybe going forty and zero, going through the season undefeated. Um, so. And you knew they were so much better. I mean, they, they had platoons. They played Cal used the platoon system because they had so many players. And you thought, okay, well, this, this is going to get boring after a while because they're just going to pound people. But it really wasn't wasn't that way. Uh, there was always stuff going on. There was always things to write about. And there, you know, they had interesting personalities on that team. Uh, when you talk about, you know, like you said, Carl Anthony Towns, Willie Cauley-Stein, Devin Booker was on that team. You know, people forget, well, Kentucky fans haven't forgotten. Devin Booker was on that team and He's didn't play a whole lot. And they had semifinal loss to Wisconsin. That sticks in the craw of a lot of Kentucky Kentucky fans. Uh, but, you know, they, they were an amazing – they were really were an amazing team to watch. And then when it came down to stretch, there was a lot of pressure on them. You know, can they be the team that goes 40-0? and And they ran into a Wisconsin team that had a really good game plan for them that had played them uh, previously in the Final Four. So they had a revenge factor uh, out there out and uh, you know, a couple of breaks didn't go their way and ended up losing the game but that still was a remarkable team Do you, are you did you think because right that year Carl Anthony Towns was amazing obviously I think there was a lot of hype about him going into the NBA in terms of just his NBA career to like how he was that college season are you surprised are you disappointed do you think he'd be as good as he would end up being uh, you, know, you know the funny thing about Carl Anthony Towns is that we saw him before came to Kentucky because Cal coached the Dominican Republic team uh, 
before that, and I think one of the reasons Cal coached that team is it would improve his chances of getting Carl Anthony Town. So, you know, and he was, like I said, he was on a team that was a, that platoons, so he didn't play 40 minutes a game. Uh, but we knew that he had the talent to be a really good player. He was a really fun kid to be around. He, he could joke around with him. He had a really good sense of humor. You know, as far as going to the NBA, you know, it's really kind of tough to judge because he's never really been in a position where he had a lot of guys around him, uh, you know, to be a playoff team. Uh, you know, it seems like the Timberwolves are getting better, so hopefully he'd be in a better position like that. But you could tell early on that this guy had a lot of skill and he had a real chance to be a really, really good player. Do you think the Anthony Davis team was better than that Carl uh, Anthony Towns team? Uh, winning the championship aside. Uh, well, like you said, I mean, the 12th team was able to get it done. Uh, the 15 team was not. I think uh, overall, the 15 team probably had more talent, but they didn't have Anthony Davis. I mean, Anthony Davis was so good that year. He was so dominant. He's a guy who, you know, barely scored in the championship game and still was the most outstanding player in the national title game because he blocked so many shots and was just such a presence on the floor. He's another guy, too, that especially offensively, as the year went on, you could see he was getting better and better offensively. He wasn't a great force, but you could tell he was getting better. Uh, the, the thing that people forget about that 2012 team is that they had Darius Miller, who was a senior, who'd been in the program for a long time. They had uh, Terrence Jones, who was a sophomore in his second year. Deron Lamb was a sophomore in his second year. They had some guys on that team who were a little bit older. People think about, oh, it was a one-and-done team. And obviously with Davis and Michael K. Gilchrist and Marcus Teague was the point guard. They did have three very good freshmen on that team. Uh, Davis and Michael Kidd, Joe, Chris went one, two in the draft. But they did have some experience on that team as well. Uh, you know, if, if the 12 team and the 15 team played against each other, that would be a heck of a game. But uh, there's no doubt in my mind that Anthony Davis would still be the best player on the floor. Is he the best player you think Cal's had during his time in Kentucky? Yeah, I think so. I think he's the best. I think he's the best player both in college and in pro. John Wall was a really good – John Wall was an interesting player here from the standpoint. He was almost like a phenom when they got him and they brought him in. He made that first class. DeMarcus Cousins was, was a really good player, obviously, as well, on that team too. But I think overall, the players that John has brought in here, he's brought a lot of great players in, but Anthony Davis is at the top of the list. Who would you have, like, who would you say are the next four or five guys after that? Because if Anthony Davis is clear number one, who would be those next guys? Oh, wow. Uh, well, I'm, Towns would be on that list. John Wall would definitely be on that list. Uh, you know, i tell you a guy who I think uh, who is, he played well here, but he was on a team that didn't make it to the Final Four. Uh, and maybe maybe I'm showing recency bias here, but a guy who will turn out to be really good and then we're seeing signs of that is Tyrese Maxey. When you go back and look at it at the end, he may be among the top five players that Cal has brought in. Uh, you know, I'm trying to think here off the top of my list. A guy who was really, a guy who was really good here, uh, and he has not quite had the pro uh, career that I thought he would have. Is Brandon Knight on that 2011 team that uh, went that did go to the Final Four? Uh, he was a really good player here. He won a couple of those games in the NCAA tournament. I can think early on in the tournament just because he was the best player on the floor. Um, I would think he would rank up there high among guys at Kentucky that Cal has brought in just for the time, just for how they played while they were at Kentucky. Where would you rank Calipari in terms of college basketball coaches right now? Well, 
Well, that's a really good question. I mean, he's got a rank. He's got a rank way up there. He only has one national title, and I think Cal would even tell you that he probably he should have won it in 2015. He had the best team in 2015. Uh, he probably should have won a couple of more. Uh, you know, my colleague Jerry Tipton, who just retired but covered you know UK basketball for 40 years. Jerry has said all along that the job that Cal did in 1996 with that UMass team is among the best jobs ever done in college basketball. I mean, UMass was nothing. Nobody hardly even heard of UMass. And, uh, you know, that was a really, that was a great Kentucky team that won it in 96. They were so deep under Rick Pitino. And UMass beat them early in the year and then played them right down to the wire in the final four as well. So, you know, he built them up from nothing. So um, I think Cal has to rank right up there. And I'm not sure he ranks up, you know, with the Shashevsky or Dean Smith or somebody like that. But I, te- I think he definitely, uh, you know, is an elite coach, elite coach in the profession, especially when you look at his body of work over the years. Can you describe to me what the rivalry between Kentucky and Louisville is like in basketball? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, obviously it's a very heated rivalry between the two schools, Louisville. Uh, I can put it to you this way. A friend of mine who, uh, a longtime friend of mine, he got a job in Louisville and he went to work in Louisville. And he said when he was in Louisville, because you have so many Kentucky fans and Louisville fans, he he said, uh, you have to choose. You can't say that you're a fan of both teams. You have to choose. You're either a Kentucky fan or you're a Louisville fan. They don't let you get away with saying, oh, well, I root for both teams. So, yeah, it's a very heated rivalry, especially in basketball. Part of that. Part of the reason it's a heated rivalry in basketball is because they went so many years without playing. I mean, Adolph Rupp, when he was the coach, he didn't. He had a rule that he wouldn't play the state schools. He thought he had everything to lose, nothing to gain, but by, by playing the state schools, so they didn't play Louisville. They went. Denny Crum came in as the coach of Louisville. Denny made an issue of that that they wanted to play Kentucky. That they Louisville was just as good as Kentucky, and they kind of proved that. Louisville, they, they went to the kept going to the Final Fours. They won the championship in 1980 with Daryl Griffith and that team, and there was a lot of pressure put on. Basically, the legislature stepped in and said, hey, you guys have got to play, and they finally played in the NCAA tournament in what we call the dream game in Knoxville in 1983, and then the series started after that. And it's kind of gone back and forth. Uh, Kentucky's probably had the upper hand overall, uh, but it's gone you know back and forth between the two schools. And obviously, when Rick Pitino, uh, you know, he left Kentucky to go to the Boston Celtics, and then when he came back into the college game, he went to Louisville, you know, which much, uh, uh, you know, obviously Kentucky fans start calling Rick Trader Rick and so forth. It was like the worst possible school for, in their mind, that uh, if you're a Kentucky coach and you go off to another college program, you don't go to Louisville, and Rick did that, so that turned it up even more. You know, the funny thing about the, is between the fans, it's a very heated cut rivalry. Among the players, it's not. They all know each other. They played AAU basketball together. A lot of them were in the same camps together. They were recruited together. It's not between the players, and especially because there's there's not a whole lot of players from the state of Kentucky really on either team. It's not that you know cutthroat a rivalry. The interesting thing about the rivalry now is Kenny Payne is now the coach in Louisville. Kenny was on the Kentucky staff for several years under John Calipari. Kenny played at Louisville. He's on the was on Calipari's staff for several years, and Kenny Payne is beloved by Kentucky fans. They love Kenny Payne. He had that same personality. The players loved him. And, you know, Cal talked about when Kenny got the job how happy he was for him. And Cal made the comment at the time that he hopefully that would kind of tone the rivalry down a bit. I don't think that's going to happen, uh, especially right now. D.J. Wagner is the best player in the class of 2023, and uh, Kentucky is recruiting him. Louisville is recruiting him. Uh, Kenny Payne hired Milt Wagner 
D.J. Wagner's grandfather for a job on his staff, an off-the-court job on his staff. But meanwhile, Cal Perry coached D.J.'s father, Dewan, when he was at Memphis. So uh, that's that's gonna that's the knockdown, dragout recruiting battle between Kentucky and Louisville to try to get D.J. Wagner's services. Have Kentucky fans forgiven Rick Pitino for jumping ship? No, no, they have not. They pro- there's a there's a there's a large faction of them who will never forgive Rick Pitino for jumping ship and go to Louisville. Cal has said this, and I hope he's right that one day, hopefully, Rick Pitino can come back to Kentucky and he can appear at Rupp Arena, and the fans can give him an ovation for what he did. He did a remarkable job in his time here. Kentucky was on probation. Uh, it wasn't just that that he brought him back from probation. Other coaches can do that, but uh, the way he did it, it was. There was so much excitement and fun about Kentucky basketball, especially those first three years when Rick was coach. But you just don't do that. You just don't go to your heated in-state rival to be the coach. And so there's a lot of Kentucky fans who'll never forgiven for that. John, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast, man. I appreciate it. Sure. Thanks for having me. And once again, I want to thank John for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. And I want to thank all of you for tuning into this episode, the 460th episode of Barbershop Sports Talk. Social, moral, or medical. They have learned to enjoy liquor without letting it upset the functioning of their body and mind. It relaxes you, makes you more congenial. I just had one today.